humans, Homo sapiens, have dominated this planet for quite some time, being the most superior form of intelligence. And there's now a new form of intelligence that's arrived that is changing the game of intelligence. And we might want to contemplate that as a species, we are not progressing at the same speeds. That's Brian Johnson, founder and CEO of Kernel, a company that designs and manufactures brain scanning technology with the aim to, amongst other things, improve life expectancy by combating age-related issues. He also runs OS Fund, a venture capital firm that invests in early-stage science and technology companies. He's also the founder and former CEO of Braintree Venmo, a company which he sold to PayPal for $800 million. Brian blows my mind. He's trying to solve some of the biggest problems affecting humanity. It's rare to speak to someone with such honesty and unusual insights. I've interviewed hundreds of entrepreneurs, but the way he answers questions, the way he thinks about things, is pretty unique. Brian knew from a young age he wanted to have a big impact on the world, and he set out to do it. His plan was simple. He wanted to make enough money so he could really focus on making a difference to the world. And he did it. Not by doing anything flashy, but by building a payments platform, bootstrapping it for years, and through understanding a hell of a lot about human psychology, he got it to the point where he sold it for a life-changing amount. He personally got $300 million. Now, of course, there were lots of other things that happened on the way, and it is easy to oversimplify the journey, but I think it's so valuable to hear about how he came up with that plan and where it has taken him. Brian's ability to focus on a plan and follow it through was the thing that struck me most in this interview. In 2021, he started a personal project called Blueprint, where he's working to reverse his body's ageing. Last year, a thread about Blueprint went viral, getting 20 million impressions, and if I'm honest, it's where I discovered him too. Now, not all of that, by any means, was positive, because what Brian is doing with Blueprint is pretty extreme, and you're going to hear about it. He has given all of his decisions about what he puts into his body to an algorithm with the belief that following that will make him the best, healthiest version of himself. And he thinks we should all go on that journey too. Welcome to Secret Leaders from Kindling Media. I'm your host, Dan Murray-Serta. Brian was raised in Utah as a Mormon, though is no longer part of the church. With a lot of guests, as regular listeners will know, I like to start at the beginning, in their childhood, and it's not every day you ask a leader of this level about their Mormon upbringing. So, this time I wanted to find out how Brian would describe himself. My mind immediately goes to dark humour. I suppose when uh, when I grew up, there was this cultural disposition of trying to be viewed in a positive light to have characteristics that other people would admire and an invitation to hide your blemishes of life. And it was a community where, in a religious community where everyone was smiling and happy and energetically engaged all the time. But then inside some of the darkest, deepest secrets that they had, their their addictions and maybe struggled with with mental health or in their personal relationships were hidden from the world. And so it created this illusion of happiness and perfection. And as a child, I was left wondering about the mismatch from my own experience of reality that seemed challenging and the reality I saw everyone's existing. And so now when you pose that question, my inclinations go immediately towards the darkest parts of me. And so I would say, uh, you know, maniacally focused on my goals to the point of sacrificing uh, appropriate contributions to relationships or obsessively uh, pursuing these immediate things which I care about, um, less thoughtful of a person. I don't know. I guess I just would go down a long list of, of things where I feel like I would deviate from the norm of what a person would consider to be a good person in society. Because I think if I got scored on a a normal checklist of how we expect people to behave in society, I may score lower than a lot of people. I would potentially be at risk of being labeled a uh, a bad person. So yeah, I suppose I, I really go there because I think it's really a source of freedom to just 
unroll yourself into the world and not have any preconceived notions. We're all dark inside. We all struggle inside. It's real. And I'd rather be open and honest about it and embrace it than I would try to hide it and pretend uh, to try to achieve that social approval, which is just a mirage. So, th man, that was a really terrible answer. Did you? <laughs> no, I don't know. It's a great answer because you start immediately with the with the honest reflection on how complex it is actually to be a people pleaser, right? It's hard to keep people happy, all the different mm -hmm. people, the stakeholders in your life as life changes. When essentially you are, as we'll get onto in this interview, focused on some of the biggest things in the whole entire world, you know, akin to an Elon Musk and other great leaders in society that see a great big challenge you have picked other challenges but you see a great big challenge and say that is a challenge i'd like to work on for the next few decades of my life and solve and because it's so great and so big i know that i'm going to have to be ruthlessly focused on that thing and there will be sacrifices along the way and some of those things come down to the daily distractions of human interactions of loved ones friends mm -hmm. family etc mm -hmm. okay tell us where you where did you begin you mentioned, you know, especially the religious community. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up. In a small rural town in Utah, my most formidable memories from my childhood was my grandpa who grew up during the U.S. Great Depression. And he would pick me up in his white little truck and, uh, at 6 a.m. and we would go work all day. We would build cabins and houses and fences and dig uh, ditches and everything. Just uh, we, we, He had a farm. We grew alfalfa, corn. Uh, we worked extremely hard all day. And I don't remember ever actually having a conversation with my grandpa, almost ever, until I was you know, in my 20s. He was such a powerful example of hard work and discipline. And I think he really was the one that imprinted most on my in my formative years and interesting because you've learned i guess in that experience a lot about hard work but were there any insights about you know hard work and uh, and money as in not being on a totally linear journey together or are you too young to even think about such things my, my grandpa was a he he was a, a professor at the university he taught economics and he became a multimillionaire in his life by being the most frugal person I've ever known in my entire life. And so he would pay me, I forget what my wage was. I must've started something around 35 cents an hour or something like that. And then he would write me a check. We would go down to the bank. We deposit the check in the bank. And then once I had that, he would help me buy stocks and we would keep a ledger on my stock growth. So at the age of seven or eight, I was already investing in the stock market. And he was teaching me about this concept of compounded gains that the, the most important thing is if you earn a dollar today and you let it grow for 20 years, the value of that one dollar. And that compounded gains concept has been a pillar of my existence. I mean, now I, I think I, I probably utilize this concept more than almost anything else. Compound growth, not unusual for a successful entrepreneur to have heard this concept and then been completely fascinated by it. Give me some examples of what this insight did to you over the next 10 years. Like, where did you use this concept of compound growth to make decisions that would pay off for you in your future? This is how I was modeling out wealth. I was basically repeating the same concept my grandpa had, had taught me when I, when I was 21. And I came up with this idea that I wanted to become an entrepreneur and make a substantial amount of money in nine years time. So by the time I was 30 and with that amount of money, then of course that money could grow at a compounded rate and it would both be sufficient money to address my needs for a lifetime, but then also uh, an amount of money I could deploy on other things. And so it was really an attempt at trying to avoid having to exchange my time for money. If I wanted the money to do the work for me so that I could then apply my brain to things that uh, didn't require this exchange. And why did you want to become an entrepreneur? And related, like, why did you care about money? Why I wanted to become an entrepreneur, in one sense, it was because I wasn't good at anything. 
I grew up in this small rural town. It was deeply religious. It was a culture built upon the structure of story. That was the idea of how one understands reality. I didn't meet an engineer until I was in my early 20s. And I just was not exposed to anything from computer science, electrical engineering. It just was, it was a very much a, a blue collar world I lived in. So in my early 20s, I didn't have a basis of skill sets in computer science or engineering or anything really to go after. And so it was a self-assessment of, well, I don't really know what I'm, if I'm good at anything. And becoming an entrepreneur, it seems to me, the qualifications are tenaciousness and resourcefulness. I can do those two things. So it was really a, uh, what do I do with myself? Because I don't, I don't necessarily see any identifiable talents to do anything else. Okay. And um, I guess, you know, the other question of like, well, why do you want to make lots of money? That's not an unusual thing for a 21 year old to want, but I'm interested if there's any, um, uh, you know, any trigger in either your past or your future at the age of 21 that was more deeply inclined. I grew up reading a lot of biographies. Biographies have been one of the primary educational uh, sources for me. And in mapping out their lives, each one, I could look at the trajectory of if a person, like for example, looking at John Adams, he systematically built a career in becoming a lawyer and then getting into a public service and going through the Declaration of Independence and then becoming president of the U.S. Like he, he built this career moving along this trajectory in a system and became increasingly uh, powerful within it. And then other people, uh, uh, certain biographies, found them place uh, in a moment in time, in a revolution, or right place, right time to, to rise. And then others use wealth, uh, where they systematically built wealth and then use that money to do things in society that societal structures would not allow. And as I mapped out those, those paths, I could eliminate. I knew that choosing a path, like, for example, getting into politics, and then building a career for decades was not something I was interested in. I didn't want to play within a system. This is probably the most important point for me. I wanted to create my own system. And I wanted to create the rules of the game I was going to play. And I wanted the freedom to know the system I was in. One of the, the things I, I spend the most time in talking to my children about is helping them have the meta-awareness. A, a favorite quote of mine is by Edward Murrow. He says, anyone not confused by the situation doesn't really understand what's going on. And to me, the warmth of that is anytime I feel comfortable in any settling in with any concept, I need to shake myself a little bit and say, I'm, I've just accepted an illusion of some type. I need to peel this back a bit further of, of observing what systems they're in. And it's not obvious. You have to think really carefully and slowly and methodically and breathe through it. What are the motivational factors compelling you to do a given thing? Who are you trying to seek approval from? What, rule, what are the rules of the game? Who set up the rules of the game? Do you know you're playing this game? And it's just a constant game of peeling back the onion of figuring out what game you're playing. And so when I was 21, I basically was contemplating this idea of I didn't want to play any game society had given me. I wanted to be able to have the resources to say, I want to see the games out there and then I want to create my own new game. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me a lot of maybe misquoting. You seem good on quotes, so you can tell me, but I think it was Aristotle. Um, he said that the more the more we know, the more we realize you don't know. Um, and obviously, very similarly, what we know is a drop, what we don't know is an ocean. And I think that's very, I think it takes a certain, um, uh, a, certain type, a, a certain amount of experience in the world to show up and understand, and certainly in, in organizations. And I think the startup journey, one of the benefits of being an entrepreneur is, you know, 
you come with a great attitude and loads of hubris and confidence and uh you know pride and all these emotions of things that you think you can really do the thing and you get the door slammed on your face so many times that you actually start to introspect a lot more um, and spend time trying to learn a lot more about the depth of these emotions and you know it's a really good rocket ship of understanding more human emotions learning more empathy and learning how much you don't know and I think that's probably due to the feedback loop. I haven't thought about it too much, but that's one of the beauties of, of getting such frequent feedback is you constantly get told that you're really not as great as you think you are. And I think a lot of people in other generic jobs maybe just don't get that opportunity to constantly get the world telling them that they're not really that great, which means that they can go on believing the story and the system that they're in, that mm-hmm. you know the, the universe really does revolve around them. You don't really get mm-hmm. that opportunity as an entrepreneur. You get told many times the world doesn't. And actually the person doesn't want to buy your product and they slam the door in your face, which I just realized is a perfect segue into you explaining how you started uh, Braintree and Venmo, which you sold to PayPal for $800 million. So talk to us a little bit, snapshot, if you will, um, how getting the door slammed in your face over and over actually helped you build such an iconic and brilliant company and a surprising disruptor, I think, would be fair to say. I was building a, a startup, and uh, for for several years, they didn't pay me anything, as is expected. And I had my first child, and we couldn't pay the bills. Uh, my my wife was stay at home with our child, and so I needed to go out and find a source of income. And I applied to I think sixty different jobs. I emailed the 50 richest people in Utah asking to work for them. Nobody would hire me. Every moment. <laughs> <laughs> I think most were, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I was basically unsuccessful in any of the existing, of, of the typical offerings that people just saw, I think, who I was. And so I went to, at the time, monster.com, which was a job site. And there was a ad selling credit card services door-to-door, 100% commission. And so the qualifications were, if you could fog a mirror, you could go sell this thing. And you were only paid on what you sold. And uh, I assessed the system that was going on. So, uh, you know, you walk into a store, the owner hates you immediately. So you need to overcome that hatred of uh, you're annoying them, you're wasting their time, they have things to do way more than they have time. You need to somehow break through. And so the thing I came up with is I would pull the $100 bill, uh, $100 bill out of my pocket and say, hey, like three minutes of your time, if you don't like what I'm going to say, you can keep the $100. And then I'd open a book and I would explain to them what the credit card industry looked like, who the players were, what they did, how they did it, how they deceived things. I would be honest and say, I'm no different than anyone else. Like I'm doing the same thing, but our the way we report our financial material is transparent. You're not going to have to feel like you're being deceived. Customer service is nice. And so the pain point I was solving is this deep distrust of the industry that would that they could never get their hands on. They could never trust anyone. And so it was a thing of they, if they could just settle this once and for all with an honest provider they could rely upon, it was enough to say, do it right now, be done with it, and I'd move on with life. And so I don't know what my exact close percent was when I met with people, but it was high, maybe 60, 70%. And I would work with uh, you know, uh, a series of people in a given area. So I would get to know the entire community. And so trust would travel through these channels and I would deliver and everybody would be happy. And I got to, that experience allowed me to pay my bills, continue working on the other startup. And it allowed me to learn payments uh, from the inside out. And so I did that for less than a year. And then PayPal had been acquired by eBay and they had discontinued innovating their technology for some seven, eight years. It was behind the times and developers hated it. And so the opportunity was to build a payment system that developers loved. And my plan was a lot of people had been had tried to repeat building PayPal from the get-go, uh, building a two-sided marketplace because of how much money they had made. But PayPal really benefited by working early on with eBay. And they got the consumers on the on one side and merchants on the other side. A lot of startups tried to build a two-sided marketplace at the same time, and they failed. And so I decided I wasn't going to repeat that mistake. I was going to first build out the merchants, so get customers like Airbnb, Uber, or GitHub, and then years down the road, acquire 
the consumer portion of the business. And that's exactly what happened. Venmo had done a, a wonderful job building out this new network. They had done something very counterintuitive, which people had otherwise kept their, their personal financial interactions private. And they made it public and as a, as a thing, as a social network of sorts. And so we acquired Venmo and it was basically we were the first ones to pair consumers and businesses in a payment infrastructure, which allowed us to get our cost of payment to zero and not pay the credit card. And that's when uh, PayPal came in to buy us. I'm so proud of what the two companies have become, uh, both Braintree and Venmo. I mean, Braintree is part of the global payments infrastructure. I mean, it's everywhere. And it's satisfying to see the company live on and, and the culture's thriving. Venmo as well, you know, it's been, uh, it's, a, it's a cultural staple. So yeah, as an entrepreneur, it's extremely satisfying to see these companies continue on and grow like they have. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. Coming back to the PayPal acquisition then, how long was that process? Like, did you have a target number? Did you want to sell for more? Did you plan to sell for less? Like, how quickly did it all happen? And can you give us some insight? Like, you know, what was wrapped up into those terms? Did they want you to stay? Did you not want to stay? Like, how did you negotiate is what I really want to know. Like, I think the key insight here is um, the strength of your position. A lot of the details that go into a deal, right, are who has the negotiating upper hand here? So do you want to sell more than they want to buy you? It sounds like from what I've read, they wanted to buy you almost as much as you wanted to sell. But I would love to know from you and how that psychology of what you understood to be the terms of the deal played into how you agreed to stay on and and, and move one culture into another bigger one. Mm -hmm. Braintree was always in a strong financial position. I bootstrapped it for five years before I took any outside capital. We were profitable, I think, for almost every month of that five years. And uh, it was true when PayPal showed up, we were growing extremely fast, especially with Venmo, uh, now part of the company. To me, the, the most significant consideration was you know, I was 34 years old and I was eager to get on with life. And uh, going back to compounded gains from my grandpa, the people in history that I most emulated and wanted to model had done things for a few decades. You, you need to do something for a few decades to really hit uh, impressive compounded gains. And uh, at the age of 34, I didn't want to wait any longer to get started on this next chapter of life, especially because I was going to make this very large transition from no engineering to doing you know, software engineering at 
Braintree Venmo to then moving into deep tech. And so I would need to learn a dozen new disciplines. And it, I knew it was going to take me some time to get spun up, start those things, try to find a, a path. I want to know about the day the deal happened. Like, how did you feel emotionally? What was it like to have $300 million hit your bank account? It landed and intuitively it felt much larger than my comprehension could reach. And so it was this weird mixture of you know joy and relief, but also almost overshadowed by what just happened and what's coming my way. I could intuitively feel a complexity land in my lap. And so I suppose, yeah, maybe as you're observing, I, I do try to be introspective in the various things that are happening and joy seemed too simplistic of a response. It seems much more nuanced and multidimensional and I wanted to try to wrap my head around it as fast as possible to avoid making silly mistakes in any way, shape or form. So I don't know, it, it was, um, it's a whirlwind. It's just like, it's almost like a shock event where you're trying to get your mind straight and you and it just is too powerful for you in one moment. But it's interesting with you because you, you have a reason, like a lot of entrepreneurs that sell their businesses, um, they never really had a target in mind when they started and they didn't have, really have a reason why they're selling either forethought, if that makes sense. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for you, $300 million landing in your lap is a purposeful amount because it means that you can get on with the next stage of your life that you're already clear and the $300 million is going to go some way to helping you achieve that, which is, I would imagine, but I'm speculating because it's your lived experience, not mine, but I would imagine actually probably has um, more sense of meaning to it than a lot of entrepreneurs find because the, the answer a lot of people give at this point is I felt empty or I wasn't really mm. sure what I felt, you know, whereas for you, it's like, actually, you know, this is the springboard you've been waiting for so you can do stuff. So I'm wondering if it actually felt really motivating or it, that didn't quite land yet. I mean, I suppose in this conversation, the temptation is to, to summarize the situation as some simplistic emotional reaction. And it, just is not. It's nuanced and it's challenging and it's scary. It's everything all at once. Yeah, you know, there were so many things. Like I was in a relationship that was deeply in trouble. I was leaving my faith. I was leaving the church, my born into religion. I was uh, trying to deal with chronic depression that I'd had for 10 years. Like there was so much happening in life and I was trying to keep the wills on just to keep things going. And so money was, was a input to the consideration, but also me contemplating being a divorced father, leaving this religious structure I've had my whole life and needing to reconstruct my existential reality. Where am I going to live? Who are my friends going to be? What motivates me in life? I mean, everything was on the table. So money was one of many things competing for my emotional state. And it wasn't number one. Over the last few years, recent years, you've basically become insanely wealthy and you've made hundreds of millions of dollars, whereas before you grew up as a young father with not much money at all. How has that psychologically affected your understanding of how to be a parent, asking very selfishly as a, as a parent to a one-year-old? Because it's a big shift. You, you know, you've gone from not zero, but uh, like very little to hundreds of millions of dollars in personal wealth. How has that had to change your emotional and psychological understanding of how to be a dad? Mm -hmm. When, when I made the money after selling uh, Braintree Venmo, I, there was a very clear decision that I needed to make. And that was, to me, it seemed a black and white decision. Do I hide the wealth from the children and try to create a you know, quote unquote normal environment environment for them to be raised or do I be transparent? And after uh, some study, I chose to be transparent. And literally I would, I would show them my bank account. I would show them investments I made. I would show them the value. I'd show them uh, days when, you know, 
tens of millions of dollars were made in the stock market and then days where tens of millions of dollars were lost in the stock market. And I would have them pay checks at the restaurant to calculate the tip. I gave them complete uh, uh, view into my world. And then we would talk about it. We talk about what it means to have money and the differential between uh, one person having a certain set of means, power or whatever, and someone else not having it. And, what, and so we've been building those intuitions now for 10 years as a family of what does it mean to have uh, means greater than others. And in retrospect, I'm very happy we did that. They are, most people's comments about my children are that they just cannot believe uh, how well-behaved and thoughtful and conscientious. They're wonderful humans. And I don't know uh, what is attributable to them just being those kinds of people by default and what is attributable to the way they were parented. Uh, but it's worked for us. And the transparency has been really useful. And now that they're getting to my 19 and 17 year old boys, now that they're getting, they're engaged in senior year of high school and college, it matters. You know, people know who has wealth and who doesn't. It changes the dynamics of relationships. It changes dynamics of access to certain things. It creates social pressures that are challenging for them. And to have a starting point where it's, tra it's transparent and they've had time to build the skills and muscles and the psychological abilities to do it. So for me, that's been, I'm very happy that that strategy was chosen. You like me, like just so many entrepreneurs, um, you know, didn't come from lots of wealth and came from a difficult, more challenging background and chose to use those experiences to find motivation you know it, it gives you intrinsic motivation there's kind of the underdog story of wanting to write your own rules in your own path do you worry therefore for your children like about the intrinsic motivation and motivation in general like where you start on high on the hierarchy of maslow's needs how that might affect what you do and where you find energy to go out and and, and do stuff in the world oftentimes i find that when people achieve a certain level of success and they're invited to pontificate on their own success it invites the person to generate a hero's story uh, with a narrative arc of humble beginnings and then to the heroic accomplishment and i'm skeptical of that deeply in thinking through my own uh, life it's not clear to me why i am the way i am it's not clear why i do the things i do oftentimes even in the most difficult times, it felt almost like it wasn't me doing things. It was something else driving. When I wanted to lay on the floor and be in a comatose state because I was so beat up, it's almost like something else wanted to get back up and do it. And when I speak to my children about their own dispositions, I try to help them channel the same thing of avoid this narrative construction in their own minds about what they should be or what they are to breathe into it and just feel it. Our desire to create pretty stories for ourselves and others is overwhelming. And we do so without even uh, thinking twice about it. And so I'd say with them, I've really tried to help them be at peace with whatever is, and then to work with that. After selling Braintree Venmo, Brian wanted to focus on what he describes as helping humans thrive beyond what we could collectively imagine. Yeah, he founded Kernel in 2016 to help accelerate cognitive evolution, basically making humans more intelligent. The fastest way to do that, he said, was to quantify our brains and minds. So he invested $54 million of his own money into the company, which builds non-invasive brain recording technology. Brian has continued to look at how human beings can be and do better, including himself. In 2021, he started Project Blueprint. It involves measuring his 70 plus organs and then using that data to try to reverse the biological age of each as much as possible. He follows a strict diet and gives up all of his decisions around what he eats to this algorithm. As well as diet, the regime also includes taking 25 supplements a day, strict exercise, skincare and sleep routine. It has its roots with grandpa and compounded gains. If we zoom out on planet Earth, 
and we ask what is really going on on this planet, I would say there's only one thing that really matters. It's the advancement of computational intelligence. If we look at the speed in which, you know, we can call it AI, computational intelligence, whatever we want to put the label on, we, the speed at which it's progressing is staggering. And fundamental to being human is this challenging thing we have is we commit the same mistake repeatedly. We sometimes we master it pretty well. Like when we learn to crawl then walk, you know, most of us don't trip. Like we've mastered the art of walking and we can reliably walk without tripping and making mistakes. So some things are pretty durable. Other things are not in the errors we make of eating unhealthy food or uh, going to bed at improper times of causing us. So we do these things that cause us accelerated aging, progression towards disease, self-harm in our minds. And blueprint is a fundamental question to ask this, pose this question, can I stop self-harm? Can I actually get myself to a point where I could start improving myself at a different speed? And the biggest, the, the fastest way to start that would be to stop making the same mistake. And so the, the idea is I, I measure all the organs in my body through hundreds of measurements, uh, biofluids like blood, saliva, stool, and then doing uh, advanced measurements, MRI, ultrasound, and I let my organs speak. So my heart can speak directly, my lungs can, my pancreas, my liver, and it can state exactly what it, want, what it wants. And then it, we use gold standard scientific evidence, and that's used to develop a protocol. And then that runs. And then I measure myself again, we look at evidence and it runs. This is the same thing I learned in becoming a pilot. When I get the airplane in the air and I can turn the autopilot uh, on, it flies the plane much better than I could. This is basically autopilot for you. And it, it has enabled me to achieve the best health of my entire life. During the years of, of building Braintree, the, emotionally it was intense, again, because of challenges in the home front and leaving my religion, existential reality, contemplation, all the things that are going on. And then trying to come up with, is there a version of existence that actually would be meaningful to me? And uh, one of the challenges I had is I would, I worked very hard to be healthy. I would try to eat well at breakfast and then work hard all day and, and try to be, you know, a, a good boy. And then 7 p.m. at night would come and I would eat myself sick. And I would do so to try to address the pain I felt of life. It would try to soothe it. And it of course, just made everything worse because then I couldn't sleep. And then the next morning I'd feel awful and then I'd be snippy and like you clot on my mind, like all the things we all know. And I had to fix that. And so with Blueprint, the, the idea behind this was, could I create an algorithm that took care of me better than I can? If you are to contemplate this question, if I were to pose this to you, if you could have near perfect health and avoid all the small details, it's just general concept, but you had to say yes to an algorithm that was running your dietary intake, it included, it would tell you what foods to eat and when to eat them. And in exchange for that, that meant you wouldn't be able to make decisions in the moment of what to eat to satisfy a certain craving or to do a certain thing. You had to simply, you would just follow the algorithm. Would you do it? Would you make that trade-off? And this challenges to a breaking point, most people's imaginations about happiness in themselves. They cannot get over that there may be another version of reality that they're unfamiliar with that may bring them greater happiness. And so they have a knee-jerk reaction to say, impossible. There's no other way I could be happy as a human than what I'm doing now. And that sounds like a dystopic environment. It's like when you pose that question to me, uh, I need to always catch myself and imagine that there may be versions that I'm unfamiliar with of future me or future states, the ones that are unfamiliar, that may actually be better states than I have now. I just my knee-jerk reaction just wants to smother it because it's different. Because oftentimes when we want to change the world and we think about the future of existence, we want to point at everyone else and fix everyone else. We want to fix institutions. We want to correct the wrongs in the world, but we point at everyone. We don't point at ourselves as a source of a problem. But within me, I was a war zone, you know, in terms of what my mind wanted and my body wanted and what, what behaviors I did. I certainly was not, I was committing a lot of self-harm. And so the first question is, can I achieve goal alignment within myself? Can I achieve a 
a peaceful state, and I have. And the next question is, you know, if you look at the next progression, can you achieve goal alignment between in between humans and with humans and AI and planet Earth? But if we, the big picture is, if we think about the future of intelligence, the progression of computational intelligence, the ability for humans to get on this wave and ride with it, we need to start thinking about how we can improve ourselves in these very basic ways so we can open up the opportunity to improve ourselves in unknown ways. Yeah, and I think, you know, part of this as well, people don't broadly understand some of the more core fundamentals of health. So when you say to me, uh, would I do that? So my instant reaction, like you say, is one of resistance. You know, why is there one of resistance? Actually, interestingly, because my gut dictates what I want, generally speaking. Um, and because I am personally super interested in gut health, and because I've been on a journey with gut health at a deeper level than, you know, your general person was and deeper level than I was two years ago, I understand that 90% of my happiness is dictated from what's inside my gut and that, you know, most of the things that I'm craving are based on my gut. And so when I think about it, I think, okay, how long will it take me to form this habit? And can I retrain what my gut is demanding of me every single day? Once I get over that hurdle, then yes, quite possibly. But I know, like you do, the happiness attached to what my gut is telling me to eat and why I want it, etc, etc, is going to confuse the shit out of me along that journey. And I know that you're so into, you know, supplement routine and making sure that you're feeding your body and your gut certain things to help inform that algorithm. But I think that's the that's the thing, right? It's the disconnection from what's normal and the period of time that that would take to disconnect before this becomes the new normal. I think that's the big challenge. Is that common? Is that my response kind of common from what you, you usually hear from people? Would it surprise you and or offend you if I said it was 99% common? Well, I'm English, so you couldn't possibly offend me. But, you know, <laughs> nice try. No, that's I, I, it's kind of what I expect, right? I, and actually, no, because, right, I, I suppose, coming back to the point, where you are right now is what I describe. You know, I certainly describe this at my company Heights, right? We talk about the 1%, but we're not for the 1%. Mm -hmm. We're actually trying to help the people that are in the 2 to 5%, as in below 5%, people generally don't care about their health, if I was to use a broad, very broad strokes opinion, right? Maybe call it the top 5% care enough to give it the thought to start thinking. But the 1%, you know, you're talking about the biohackers, which obviously is what Blueprint is. It's biohacking, you know, it's the expensive machinery. It's the real deep introspection. That is another level. And that's absolutely fine. Maybe I will, maybe I'm on the journey to being on that level. Maybe being within the 5 to 2% is the journey towards that level. But I guess my answer to your question is absolutely no, I'm not offended because I would never describe myself currently as the 1% because I know I'm not. There's a a thought experiment I've used for quite some time for interviews. And then also I've started using this at Blueprint dinners that I host. And it goes like this. We're in a social situation. We're having fun. I'm the host. I turn to a friend in the environment. I say, hey, Kate, how much water should I drink on a daily basis to make sure I'm healthy? I'm, you know, I'm hydrated. And Kate kind of looks at the room and glances and she's like, oh, you know, like, I think it's like roughly eight cups of water, LOL. I take, you know, this little canteen of water around with me everywhere I go, this flask of water. And I, I go to the bathroom quite a bit. It's kind of annoying, but I'm not quite sure what to do. But my friends drink this much water too. And I think they're pretty happy. So I think, I think eight cups of water a day. Great. And then I ask Kate, Kate, have you seen any evidence that, it, that shows you what proper levels of hydration are is thirst actual a proper signal? Like hunger is not. We get hunger signals when we are not hungry and we shouldn't eat. Is thirst a reliable signal? Is it change with age? Is it change with environment, et cetera? And the person's response would be like, well, no, I'd read this article one time. They said, okay, great. So let's redo the thought experiment one more time. Kate, we're in a social situation. We're having fun. Hey, Kate, how much water should I drink on a daily basis to make sure I'm hydrated? Now, if the person has fully heard the thought experiment and they're clever, they'll say, I don't know. Exactly. And the majority of times when we are posed a question, we pose a question to ourselves or others pose a question to us, I model out that I'm 99% likely to be wrong because I'm just going to regurgitate these thoughts that come to my mind. I need to be aware of what comes out of my mind, but I need to stop. And then I need to sort 
what's wrong about them and how wrong they are. And this is the conversation. This is, I suppose, I do not trust my brain. And it's especially true after spending time in neuroscience where I've learned more about the human brain. Our brains lie to us. They create this wildly distorted version of reality. And my relationship with myself is I trust nothing that comes from my brain. I assume it's wrong all the time. And this example of how much water should I drink, it is a great representation of how we typically pass information along in society. You know, it's you hear something repeated once and then you repeat it as fact. And then everyone in that group now has this idea that eight cups of water is actually valid versus the person saying, I don't know. And then people then taking the time to pose interesting and thoughtful questions. Can I trust thirst as a basic idea? Does the number of is water coming to, to a person's body, does it change dramatically according to diet and environment and age, all that kind of stuff? And so I'd say that in my discussion with people about this thought experiment of would you make this trade-off of an algorithm running you better than you can run yourself, it takes a moment to breathe into it because it, it triggers this thing which everyone has, which means which is just a simple algorithm. If different, reject. And that's all it is. And then the brain comes up with dozens of reasons why you should reject. But it just on the basic idea of it being dissimilar or unfamiliar, the brain wants to shut it down immediately. So I do have one one counter argument. So I say counter argument is more like a, a personal reflection, actually, rather than an argument, because I, I agree with what you said. So I, for a period of time, did uh, intermittent fasting for 22 hours a day. And it was very fucking annoying because you still, the common misconception with that is, oh, calorie deficit. And it's like, no, no, I still ate the amount of calories I was meant to eat, but like just was very uncomfortable for two hours trying to eat that much food in a day. I wasn't doing the nth degree of biometric tracking and all that stuff, but I was giving myself time as I do with any fad that I run into or whatever it is. I give myself some time to be like, I'm going to try this for a month, two months, three months, I found it's really interesting. It was like, okay, why am I doing this? Uh, for my health, for my mental health, for my productivity, for all of these reasons that I was testing. Okay, what is the reality of what happened after a few times? Actually, I stopped socializing. You know, if it's lunch or dinner or whatever, if it was lunch, it's like I'm not eating. People are like, it's kind of uncomfortable and weird, like just don't fucking come kind of thing. And then if it was dinner, it was like, this guy is eating so much. It's like a pig. He's like, you can't eat that much. You're always ordering. So, so, you know, whatever happened, I was like, my social situations, I'm putting myself in for this diet. They are outweighing the potential benefit that the silly fasting schedule does for me, that I was finding myself n not connecting anymore. And so I was fascinated that my diet choice, well, I found it, it was an unusual experience to go through. I never would have predicted that diet choice or whatever would have changed social connection, which was then connected to my happiness. Um, and so I wonder, like, that's quite a, kind of my only counterpoint when I hear you talking. I'm like, well, I suppose this also needs to be wrapped up realistically um, in one of those situations where either Brian is really comfortable um, knowing, as you will, that there's going to be a social contract exchange here and your understanding of where you get fulfillment and connection is going to have to change. Or you fortunately get to the point like religion where everyone's believing the same bullshit and everyone's doing the weird shit and suddenly it's a very social thing to do again. <laughs> um, but there's a big gap in between those two spaces. So I guess that's my only thing, right? Is like understanding um, society, which is already so lonely, you know, almost doesn't need more barriers to be lonely. And I'd love to know like how that psychological exchange maps out because again, you've worked in neuroscience, you know so much about loneliness and how the brain thrives on social connections. So I'll stop talking. I'd love to know what you think. You're describing a trade-off space you entered into. You chose to do intermittent fasting because that was the game you wanted to play. And then you observed that your chosen gameplay created friction with uh, societal norms. And you're identifying the uncomfortable nature of those frictions and potential downsides. The same calculation can be said about becoming an entrepreneur or about having children, or about being in a relationship. Every single one of those things creates trade-offs that one needs to contemplate in doing that. Sometimes it creates more friction than others and societal norms. To me, it's much easier to gleefully embrace the trade-offs when you've carefully chosen your gameplay. 
that you you accepted all the trade-offs that come along with it and you just embrace it with happiness. And so I, I've experienced similar things. My life is pretty unusual and I've been able to massage it here and there to try to rub the sharp edges off of it. To me, as a species, we would be wise to play a very different game than we're playing right now. Uh, extremely different. And I would much rather address the frictions I feel that butt up against societal norms in pursuit of, the, of this new game than I would to play the existing games, which I think, which I don't place a lot of value on. What has been your favorite rebuttal? What do you actually think is the most challenging rebuttal that you've had to Blueprint and the way that you want to live your life and the, you know, the Blueprint that you think others should consider? I mean, Blueprint blew up. The I've been doing this for 18 months, blogging about it openly, sharing all the science and my experience. And uh, the week of Thanksgiving in the US, it blew up. Uh, 20 million impressions on this. And I'd say the the energy behind the responses was exceeded what I like, like how much of a powder keg was there? <laughs> like how much explosive was there in this? And it was uh, more than I ever had imagined. I mean, people uh, were openly saying they wish I would get hit by a bus and that they and, and die and that they would rather die than do this than you know eat what I eat and that uh, I mean it's just. It, they people were trying to generate the meanest possible comments they could and i personally love it i mean i think that's fantastic it uh i don't it doesn't hurt my feelings in the least bit it actually makes me happy to hear it and so i i made a list of responses i gave i basically gave everyone a a starter kit uh for uh throwing shade at Brian Johnson's blueprint. I collected the best insults and I was like, hey, if you want to you know, send something searing my way, start with these, but then level up and get something better. But the th interesting thing about this is uh, when you touch on this topic, you get to the root of these deeply emotional issues of food and health and discipline and people feeling powerless to change themselves. And so it, it just touches upon the most sacred things of humans, like, you know, our free will and our ability to decide and our relationship to technology to each other, to food, to our ability to decide what we want to do whenever we want to do it, the freedom to commit self-harm. And so I'd say it, it was, I liked it because it was like a group therapy of sorts. <laughs> like we, people got to be out there and be rowdy and take their, their toughest shot at me. But really, it's a conversation with themselves, not with me. And I guess the reason I was asking you, you know, what, are, what is the best, most uh, comprehensive rebuttal that you've had is because um, I know that I won't be the smartest person to have thought of an instant rebuttal. For example, social connection, you know, instantly you make the really great point of that's just a different game and you're choosing different rules of engagement in your game. So you definitely checkmated me on that one because instantly I was like, God, he's right. That's annoying. Um so I, but I imagine that you've come up against really, really fascinating deep thinkers about the challenge, the, the problem that you're posing. And so I would love to know what you genuinely think to be the best limitation or the best and most thought provoking disagreement that you've actually acknowledged and thought, yeah, okay, that's a good one. It gives you an opportunity to think further on the topic. I would classify them as a philosophical intrigues of if we say if we say yes to an algorithm that runs me better than I run myself, then it poses this question, is this a version of conscious existence I want? And that's a matter of preference. It's not a, a rebuttal. And this is a, a thing that I think all, every human on this earth is going to have to contemplate is as technology does more of what we do today. And so it poses this interesting question. The world's going to change dramatically and we will be invited to contemplate our own personal change. And so I don't think anyone uh, 
sincerely will argue that they would prefer to be overweight, unhealthy, diseased, and dying. I think most people would, it's just an easy choice. Would you rather be fit, looking your best, being your best? They say yes. Now there's a, a whole bunch of details that come up of what do you have to do to do that? And then I think a lot of people look at that and they feel powerless, hopeless to achieve that because we've all, everyone's tried to change and we've all, we all have poked at change and we know how hard it is and we just give up on it. And this is, goes back to this idea that blueprint is not an effort to say, to appeal to the most disciplined people of society. This is a, an argument that we need to build a new system of being. We should be rethinking how we do things as a species, right? First is as myself, like the first thing is don't point at someone else, point inside self and achieve goal alignment within self. And then you can take your step up. But again, even our, our one of our most biggest challenges, climate change, climate change is blueprint. It's just earth is our body. You, so the same thing would apply. You measure earth with millions of measurements. It allows the earth to speak about tolerable levels of acidity in the ocean and the coral reef and pollution in the air and all the different variables. And it puts constraints on the behavior because we commit self-harm on the earth in the same way we commit self-harm individually. And it, it, it's a very different approach right now. We treat the earth like we treat ourselves. We're marching ourselves into the self-destructive situation, hoping that technology is going to save us. And so we live these lifestyles, hoping that some pill can help us or whatever. We're hoping technology can do it on earth. But instead, the future of our existence is this new form of computational goal alignment between ourselves, within ourselves, between each other, with AI and with planet Earth. It's really interesting because one of the things you just said there is, you know, we hope as human beings that, you know, the, we can, uh, science and technology will catch up and we can solve a lot of the human uh, problems that we've caused as well. Of course, one of the really interesting things about working in longevity, which you do and to, you know, my own degree, uh, I do as well in my company, you know, so thinking a lot about what longevity means, if you think about the retirement age, you know, a lot of times you're actually encouraging people to step out into retirement when they're almost in their prime, uh, ultimately, um, certainly in science and technology, right, you're you, you spend so long learning these amazing core skills, and then you're put out to pasture when ultimately you, you might have another 10, 20 productive years of real scientific breakthrough in you. And so I think that's one of the best uh, arguments I'm aware of for longevity for increasing lifespan, because actually, um, intelligence and wisdom and experience all compounds over time, you know, as, as the master of someone who's really fascinated by compound growth, imagine the difference of leaving your job at 75 versus 95, like how much mm -hmm. more you could contribute to the advancement of, of science and technology in a meaningful way that will obviously help humanity. See, that's, for me, one of the most exciting opportunities around longevity, it's keeping people in work, productive, meaningful, working in a way that they find joyful, but that's contributing in such an astounding way. For people that want to go on a, on a long compounding journey of entrepreneurship to do something really meaningful in the world, you know, what is your piece of advice for them? What do you think they should focus on? Take the time to understand the systems you're in and choose to opt into those systems or create your own systems. But don't play games that others have created and then complain about it. Be aware of your circumstances and, and map the existence that you want to be in. Amazing. Disconnect from the matrix and play your own game essentially. Amazing. Brian, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Brian Johnson, founder and CEO of Kernel. His last piece of advice there about being aware of our circumstances and defining our own systems has really stayed with me. It's so important to understand why we do what we do. If you enjoyed this episode, hit follow or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. It matters more than you think it does and really helps us make the best podcast possible. Thank you. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. 
There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening to this episode of Secret Leaders. I hope you enjoyed it. I've been your host, Dan murray Serta. The episode was produced by Ruth Edwards and brought together by our head of podcast, Will Stolliman. See you next week.